This episode, we'd like to give a trigger warning for rape, suicide, and gender-based violence. Hi everyone, welcome back to our podcast with the noisy movement and period poverty for the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. So today I'm joined with Lucy from Edinburgh Conscious, Conscious Edinburgh. (laughs) Lucy's going to introduce herself and a little bit about what Conscious is and what they're doing in Edinburgh community. Hi, so I'm Lucy and I'm the charity representative for Conscious Edinburgh and we're a student-run mental health charity um, that does peer support groups for vulnerable students and ethnic minorities as well low mood and we're looking into doing peer support groups for people who have struggled with their sexuality in the past and we do a lot of work with sports clubs and societies at the university as well so we do mental health first aid courses which committee members can sign up to to learn more about how they can support their members if they're struggling and you know spot the signs and real practical advice and also conscious conversations where we get everyone in the room to just have a frank discussion about mental health. Great, thank you. And when was Conscious uh, founded? Conscious was founded a few years ago, but it's gone through lots of different stages of development. So as a charity, that's all new this year. So this year it's very exciting because we can actually fundraise for our own projects now. And now that we're a legal registered charity, so at the bottom of all our emails it says Conscious is a registered charity now. And before that, um, we would fundraise for other charities. um, And that's taken on lots of different forms and Conscious has really grown in size over that time but Conscious itself a real beginning was in 2016 when um, a friend of one of the founders, Anisan, um, died by suicide and him and his friends decided down south um, to start fundraising to raise awareness of men's mental health and try to get their male friends to speak more openly about how they're feeling and then you know, that moved up here with them when they came to uni in Edinburgh and the effort has really carried on down the years with different people all joining in. Great, yeah. So um, when you first set up Conscious, I know you didn't exactly, but um, what was the response from students and what is the response like now? Do you find that people are really willing to engage in, in the discussion and the initiative? Again, it has definitely changed over the years. If you think that what the conversation around mental health was like in 2016 and just how much that has changed over four or five years, it's been absolutely huge. So at first, people were very interested in hearing about mental health because, you know, if you're a student struggling at university and someone offers, or they say that they understand how you feel and that what you're feeling is normal, of course, you know, people are really excited about that and it's this huge thing once you know that you're not just a bad person for feeling like that. So the student response in that way has always been amazing. But the more difficult thing has just always been getting people to sign up to our initiatives. So at the beginning, you know, when we're doing conscious conversations or our mental health first aid courses, getting people to, you know, to actually, because it's a whole weekend, so it is a decent, you know, it's a good amount of time out of their uni work. And with all the best intentions, people might not always have it at the top of their priority list but this year we have really noticed a huge difference and it's been absolutely amazing because we're actually now our waiting list is huge which of course we absolutely love because it just means that everyone is wanting to support their members because that's you know that's why they do it they don't get paid for it or anything like that we fund it for them but that's the only real benefit is helping out their members and it's been great to see how that has changed And I guess I'd say as well, um, the main problem with student engagement 
is getting people to come forward and say that they're the ones who are struggling. Because I think that, you know, if you're a committee member, for example, like you've signed up to be the wellbeing officer, that's what you want to talk about and you feel confident um, maybe, maybe giving advice to people or signposting. But if you're the one who is actually struggling, then it's a lot more difficult to come forward. So, for example, on the other side of it, with the peer support groups, we have had more problems with student engagement because, you know, if you sign up to a peer support group and you turn up in person or on Zoom, then by you being there, you are admitting that you have a problem, which is a a massive step for a lot of people. And if you've never done it before, like you've never, you know, you've never been to counselling or you've never spoken to your GP about how you feel, it's, it's almost like a skill you learn, I think, learning to talk about your feelings. And not everyone has access to um, developing that skill um, if they've never sought help before. So the peer support groups, it's really all about getting finding a way for people to feel comfortable talking about their mental health because, you know, we can provide all the services we like or speak to as many counsellors as we like and get all the funding in the world to fund all these amazing projects. But if people don't want to talk about it, then, you know, how do we get them to that point? And how do we get them to that point? Because this generation, what what do you think about this generation's mental health? And do you think that it's changing? Do you think that a student's lifestyle is also something that that negatively impacts their mental health? And how how can we go about tackling that? With students in particular, it can be very difficult to talk about mental health because when you're at university, it's meant to be the best time of your life. And it might not be that people are pressuring you in that sense, like you might not be someone who is vulnerable to peer pressure or you don't feel like you are. But when you're surrounded by people who are saying, you know, you're at university, it's the best time of your life and they're talking to you, assuming that you're having a good time and that you're getting along with everything, that can be um, a real barrier to getting help because, you know, you don't want to admit that you're not enjoying this thing that is meant to be the best years of your life. So just that social element of it. um, And of course, we are still right to put um, a lot of emphasis on how um, pressure to socialise in the sense of binge binge drinking can be very bad because, you know, anyone who's had a very bad hangover knows the emotional toll that can take. And then if that becomes your only way to cope or your only way to socialise and be friends with people, I mean, it gets very blurry very quickly because, you know, do they actually like you and... You know, I think we're all familiar with this feeling and have known it at some point, especially in our first few years at uni, before we feel truly comfortable. Um, but I think that as far as getting students to talk about their mental health, it's being aware of, as you say, their lifestyle, because you are busy with work. So having peer support groups and other support services at a time where realistically they're going to show up to it, and a time of day where they might be more willing to talk about it, because, you know, everyone's mood changes throughout the day and I think with a lot of people um, even if they're going through a really rough time if they have one particularly bright part of their day they then feel like they shouldn't be talking about how they feel the rest of the time Um, because you know like I've spoken to friends who have like gone to counselling and bearing in mind they've had problems for years but when they go they might be having a particularly good day and they feel like Mm -hmm. they're faking it or they're ruining the service of everyone else because they're using it whilst they're having a good day Um, So being mindful of when works for students and when they might need it most. But also I think if you make them comfortable speaking about other people's mental health first and easing them into it, I think easing in um, 
is a great way of putting it. And that's what we really try to do with the Conscious Conversations and the Mental Health First Aid courses. Because um, it's not at all like you're sat in a room and have people just talking at you. It's not the case that there's just a big presentation and you're sat there for hours and then just writing down points about, you know, alcoholism statistics and depression. Um, and, you, do, you know, you don't get anything out of it because we do put a lot of emphasis on the interaction side of it. So, I mean, I can speak for myself. I, I did a mental health first aid course and so much of it is doing interactive activities with other people who are on the course. And apart from all the information you get from the person who's doing it, who... Um, the person we've got now is a trained psychotherapist and has worked in CBT for over two decades. Um, but a lot of it, as I say, is doing activities together and speaking about really sensitive issues and hearing everyone's side of it and completely anonymised. Like you don't have to say, obviously, who you're referring to or if you're referring to yourself. No one's putting pressure on you to do that. Um, but just hearing what everyone has to say about it can be very comforting. Like that's a big part of the experience that we provide with the first aid courses. And I think that maybe if someone who's struggling goes to those first, then they might feel more comfortable going to peer support groups because they've done it before and they know what to expect. And also they will have seen someone from conscious at one of these events because we have to sit in on them even if we're not taking them ourselves. So they're going to know who they're talking to. It's not like you show up one day and you don't know who is this strange person who you're going to be speaking to. Um, you know, you're aware of who is on wellbeing team because it's wellbeing team specifically that does all of these, and that's what I'm part of. Um, you know, you're going to recognise us and you're going to feel fine talking to us and know that you know we're not going to go and blab about it to everyone else. Um, so yeah, um, feeling comfortable talking about it before you go in yourself, being aware of when is the best time to revive your services and also knowing who you're going to be talking to and trusting them that's also important great thank you so in terms of your presence in the community how how is it that you engage with students how do you reach out and say listen we have we have these these workshops and these um events like how, how do you get them to attend what is your what is your presence in the community we try to do a lot of um events on campus so of course because we're not a tech we're not a useless society so there are limits on what we can do um but if you ever see us walking around in these blue conscious t-shirts then come and have a chat with us um because that's what we're there for um but yeah you'll catch us doing um awareness raising events around campus so um we sometimes do them outside the library for example like on monday we've got a bake sale coming up that's monday the 6th which is very exciting so come and get some cakes and just have a chat to us about, about how you're feeling if you want to and any um stress relief tips during the exam period um and we also do the ball which i think surely everyone who's on social media in edinburgh uni must have seen at this point like they must have done um and that was a huge event we had the other week and that is just an opportunity for people to see what we do um and help out with fundraising as well so all of the money that we got from that is going towards these essential well-being services um so i think that we are quite successful at um our, with our presence on campus because everyone who's involved in conscious already has lots of um connections already like because we're because we're all so interested in supporting mental health around the campus because I mean everyone on committee is just completely dedicated to that I mean everyone has to think about mental health but we all do to an extent but it's a bit weird because we just we talk about it all the time and that's what we're aiming to do and 
I think because of how diverse the committee is in terms of all our different activities and interests, we do reach quite a few people. And I think this year, the big difference has been just the amount of people that we've got who already have great contacts around the uni. Great. And um, so you guys obviously do a lot of work with students, but what are your takes on the university's support of mental health? And how does that differ from what you guys want to do and how you guys want to approach mental health? What what do you... University of Edinburgh gets a lot of backlash for the counselling services, for the waiting lists, um, for just their general want to not address the mental health of students. And what do you make of that? Um, we think that it is maybe not the best thing that full-time students have to do all the work to get mental health services because... Obviously, mental health is intrinsic to everyone. It concerns everyone. And yet, it doesn't seem to take up that much of a space in the university's, in the university's budget. I heard this great thing one time that you can tell um, an organisation's ethics by its budget. You know, when you see how it's broken down into numbers, what they care about. And I think if mental health is so small on that list of things, then it, it says a lot about what the student services are thinking. And there's a big difference between providing a service and a token service because if you just put on some things, because I don't think people appreciate sometimes just how nuanced mental health services are because I think there is a big um, image that once you get help, that is the end of your mental health journey as if that is an end in itself, which of course isn't necessarily a bad thing because I think you do need to make people confident speaking up but then once they have spoken up, you need to provide the services they need after that. Um, so I think you should never stop short of talking about mental health. You also need to put in the work to deliver these services after you've got people to speak up. Because um, also it can be a big disappointment if you've been really brave and put yourself out there and then the support you get, you know in your gut that it's not right. And I think a lot of people, if they have a bad experience with a counsellor, they know that something wasn't right in that interaction but because of how the power structure plays out because you know this person has all the information they're trained and you're not you automatically assume that you're the person at fault and in that situation that is hugely damaging and it can put people off doing it in the future um so i think that if you're going to provide a mental health service it can't just be you provide a counselor because someone told you counselors are good you need to think about the process of getting help so you need to think what is it like for people when they sign up and how do you communicate them to get their appointments and how do you let them know when their appointments are and what the process is going to be because I don't think there's a lot of information out there about how the process works. Um, you know, you can see what the way of getting in touch with the counselling service is but you don't necessarily know the structure it takes on. So, for example, if you sign up to uni counselling after you wait a few weeks you'll have a preliminary appointment where you have a call and you talk about a few things and that is to see how they will go forward with you so then you after that first appointment you'll wait another few weeks and then you'll have a set amount of appointments after that with a counsellor and I think a lot of people when they sign up don't know that so they show up to this first appointment or you know, they answer the phone for the first time and they think okay I'm here I'm getting counselling but then after that first hour they're told that they have to wait another few weeks until they actually get help, which can be so, you know, if you build up all your hopes that you're going to get some support, 
it can be hugely damaging knowing that you're not going to get that straight away. So I think you need to be clear on what the process is so that people know going in and they can have a self-care plan in place to look after themselves in the intervening time. And, yeah, and I think that you've got to understand the feedback of students as well because a lot of it, you know, if we talk, because as you say, waiting times is a huge controversy at the minute and people can respond to that by saying, but waiting times aren't that bad. They're really not that bad. It's not like you're waiting six months and definitely not as bad as the actual um, NHS service if you want to speak to um, a psychiatrist. It's definitely not as bad as that waiting time. But again, you need to focus on perception. So instead of asking what the waiting time is for people, because often they won't remember the exact number of weeks, you need to ask them about their perception of a waiting time, which I think is a lot more important. And especially because if someone has received counselling in the past, they will notice the difference between university counselling and another counselling service. So um, I think that MIND, um, in England anyway, not in Scotland, so English students might be more familiar with this, but um, MIND run counselling services with schools around England, um, and their waiting times are a lot shorter, and it just works completely differently. So I think that you shouldn't just ignore the feedback um, of students. You really need to listen to what they're telling you, because at the end of the day, if you're not bothered about that, who exactly is this for? It is for you. Um, and also, I'd recommend at this point, um, if you do want to have a different experience with a counsellor, maybe get in touch with the Joshua Nolan Foundation, because they've been with us for a long time. Like We've got a really great pre-existing relationship with them, and they actually talk to all our peer support group facilitators um, to give them some advice and things they can ask so we've got a really great relationship with them and they are a fantastic service and the founder actually set up this charity because after um, her son sadly passed away um, she sought trauma counselling and had a traumatic experience with a counsellor who didn't understand where her mental health problems were coming from so they are built um, purely on that Um, so they are very concerned with feedback and what the process is like um, for the people who seek counselling with them. But I think on the whole with um, mental health at university, to go back to your actual question, um, it needs to be more, as I say, of a legitimate concern that you don't just get people to speak out, that you actually get people to the help they need because a lot of it is dependent, quite frankly, on how much money you've got. So... I know from experience as someone who went to a state school and who has never been able to have like access to private health care, that unless you can pay for it, you are not going to get therapy, quite frankly. Um, and that is, of course, a huge issue. So I think that people need to consider how are we actually going to get people to see mental health professionals after we've got them to speak out. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest issues is that there's a lot of talk about speaking out, but what happens when people do speak out? Exactly. Do you feel like the university cooperate well with you guys as a charity? Our relationship with the university has been quite new because before we have purely relied on our contacts with social, with um, societies and sports clubs. So in a way, I guess, before we've managed to bypass them, because we're speaking to individual members um, who are not 
although of course are affiliated with USA, they are not USA, um, and they are not um, the university. So um, we haven't had much contact before, but we have this year, um, as we're trying to expand this charity and find out what we can do to improve. And the response has sometimes been a bit like they're wondering why we're doing this, um, because um, they might have a bit of an ego about how great their own service is. Um, but it can be quite a grim lesson, I think, when because sometimes you can, if you're an activist, I think, for any concern, like any social concern, when you speak to people who have power, you think it's going to be great because everyone has the same values, everyone wants to get to the same place. So you think that any conversation is going to be productive and you're all going to come to it with the same things that you want to get out of it. And it can be a grim realisation when that's not the case and it can upset how you think about it for quite a while because, as I said before about um, relationship with students and counsellors, you assume that they must be right because that's how we see everything because society would fall apart if we didn't assume that about people who are in charge and are educated and have money. Um, so I think that you need to listen purely to your peers. I think that listening to peers is so, so important because at the end of the day, we're a peer-run charity. So we are students and we've all got friends with students. So we know what's being said. You know, they might have um, different ways of getting feedback or on feedback forms that they've designed on whatever. But we actually have the conversations and it's conversations where we don't ask them directly but it just comes up. And I think that that can be a huge advantage, um, being a peer on charity in that sense, because you're hearing people's thoughts unfiltered. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. So I just also want to link back, because you guys have something in the works at the moment, um, dealing with people who have, who have uh, struggled with experiences of sexual violence. Um, and consent, is that right as well? Consent yeah. classes? So I just wanted to hear a little bit like about that just so we could link it to what you guys are doing about tackling gender-based violence and also dealing with people's mental health who have undergone experiences like that. Yeah, of course. Um, so this was actually something that um, our present David asked me to do quite a while ago, was look into consent courses to put on because it's something that we've always been interested in as a charity um, because... Of course, a lot of our members are female or they identify as female, so they have experienced gender-based violence in some form at university. So we understand it quite well and um, we know what it's like. And so I was looking into what is currently on offer and I've, you know, there's so many people who are doing lots of amazing work. So, um, you know, some people from CERT have been running consent courses just in their spare time, not even with loads of funding behind them, just because they feel so passionately about it. And there are lots of projects in the work to have all kinds of programmes given to sports clubs and societies to create a better environment. And what we found along the way, as we've spoken to different people, is that compulsory consent courses, first of all, we found that we're not interested in those um, which is, of course, a very controversial issue. And a lot of universities that are trying to push consent as an issue have been focusing on compulsory consent courses. For example, there's an online one which is being run by lots of different universities, such as St Andrews, where when a student matriculates, they have to take this online course on consent when they, you know, when they sign up so they can't be fully matriculated until they've done this. And it's an online one, as I say, 
So you're just sat behind a computer and you're going through all the questions um, just to get it over with, really. And we weren't keen on that because if someone shows up to a compulsory consent course or they do an online one, they might already be in the headset that they don't govern mindset that they don't want to hear what's being said because they just have to be there. So, you know, they're a bit resentful that their time is being taken up. And also, if someone is the kind of person who is going to commit gender-based violence against someone, we just don't think that sitting behind a computer screen by themselves and just trying to get this thing over with is going to change their... have a way that they see their um, female-identifying peers at all. So that was a big concern for us. You know, you're not getting with people who are really going to commit this. So in that sense, what is the point of it? Because I think a lot of people um, will do these courses, these compulsory ones, online or not, and they will already have a working awareness of what it's like. And they might even have almost a too deep understanding to do these courses because, you know, they're the kind of person who do who does think about this a lot and is really concerned about making sure everyone else feels safe. So you're just, you know, who are you getting with these, really? You're just doing it so that you can say that you're doing it at the end of the day. And if you talk about the feedback, well, no one is going to say that after the course they were still considering committing gender-based violence because that's that's not going to happen. Um, so what we've come across, really, is that the best way to tackle the issue is to focus on leadership. So making people aware of what the process is like for reporting um, so instead of just saying, oh, report it, why aren't you reporting it? They will have a working understanding of why it might be difficult to report and how they can support someone through the reporting process. Because, um, you know, in extreme cases of rape, they someone will have to go and get checked over, for example, which is an extremely traumatic thing, and they will need to have access to a trauma counsellor immediately afterwards. And, you know, speaking to police, like, even if it's the nicest police officer in the world, it's going to be incredibly difficult because you're reliving that situation. And, you know, people, if they're going to say to someone, I'll oh, just report it, they need to be aware of just how difficult it's going to be and what they can do to support their friend or their peer throughout that whole experience. Um, and there is a lot of work underway at the minute for bystander training, which we were interested in at the university. So um, a few sports clubs have had... Um, some bystander training with a former police officer called Graham Gordon um, who I spoke to the other day who is a very lovely person so if you get the chance to speak to him definitely do um, and that is all about making sure that people feel confident speaking up in situations where a friend might be at risk so for example if you're out at a bar and your friend who is very drunk is going home with someone and you think hold on you know, is this gonna this is gonna end badly? Are they all gonna feel awful about it the next day? And having the confidence to speak up in that situation and say to them, you know, this isn't a good idea. Like we need to look after you and get you home. And I was really I was really encouraged by these bystander initiatives because a lot of what we don't talk about when we talk about consent, because I mean, everyone knows what consent means, right? Like everyone understands the basis of that word. Because, you know, everyone signs like terms and conditions. Everyone knows what accepting and consenting means. Um, but something that he spoke about um, was understanding the power relationship, which I thought well, it was great to hear, first of all, that someone else was thinking this. You know, it's one of those where you're thinking about something and someone just nails it on the head with a phrase and you're like, yes, that's, that's the thing I've been thinking about. Because, you know, if a situation arises where you're at someone's door and you just want to get in safely, like, you're, you know, you've had enough, it's the end of the night, 
and this guy who was a lot bigger than you is insisting on following you, not taking you seriously, and they might not realise power differential in that relationship they, they might be thinking oh but i was just teasing i was trying to come in the door and not realize how terrifying it is on the other end of that to realize that you know you've said no like what else can you do you're a lot smaller you cannot do anything in that situation so i think emphasizing and raising awareness of power relationships was is a hugely important thing to do with students who might not think that they're doing anything you know they don't wake up in the morning and think um, I'm going to, you know, go and harass someone, but they fall into it because they're just simply not aware of their position. Absolutely, yeah. So what you guys are organising sounds really, really insightful. Um, what else can we look forward to in the future from Conscious? Uh, you can look forward to lots of more face support groups. We're really trying to expand those. Um, now that we're back in person again, we're really hoping to get some people all in the room together to have a relaxing evening just to talk with each other about how they've been doing. And also these consent courses and awareness courses. I think I should say maybe awareness courses um, and making people into a resource around gender-based violence. That is a huge project that's coming up for us soon. And hopefully we'll have more information on that soon, but definitely keep an eye out for those if it's something that you're interested in. Um, and just ex- basically just expanding on everything that we've been doing. Because as I say, so many people this past year have been hearing about us and wanting to get involved and it's just looking at what we can do to support mental health as best as we can with resources we've got because of course we are a student-run charity and that has its limitations because we're full-time and a lot of us have very busy degrees or we're quite late on in our degrees and also it means that we don't have all the money in the world but we also have a lot of advantages because we might not be trained counsellors we do know what it's like to be a student and the needs of students And of course, a lot of people who are drawn to mental health charities have got experience with negative mental health themselves. Um, So it really is just learning more about the people that we're trying to um, help out. So, you know, a lot of it is going to be all about listening to people and hearing back of their experiences in a really unfiltered way to know what we can do going forward. Great, thank you. And how can people get in touch with you if they are struggling and looking for resources? If you message any of our social media accounts, someone will get back to you and even you don't have to worry that um we're not going to answer you or we're not going to have someone that can help you because even if we can't help you directly we will signpost you to someone who can and we always say that if you're struggling right now then um you can get in touch with um samaritans which is a 24-hour phone line that you can ring up and also they have an emailing service so if you feel like you want to write down your feelings then you can send them a letter or send them an email and they will get back to you within 24 hours and also if you just want a chat to someone then maybe call nightline that might be the best thing for you um so even if our services can't help you with your specific problem we will always point you towards someone else in a way that makes you feel comfortable speaking to them because you know you might not know what's out there and we're more than happy just to direct you to something that's more suited to you because our mental health is so nuanced there's lots of different ways that you can get support and I think that finding the thing that's right for you can be the most important thing sometimes. Great thank you so much Lucy. Thank Thank you you for coming on today. No problem. I hope everyone learned something a little bit about Conscious Edinburgh and do reach out if you're needing support or if you want to get involved. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.